We're going to be in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. I think that's page 869. The Bible's in the chairs in front of you. But as you're turning there, let me encourage you to be praying for Pastor Darbo. Uh, we sent him this week. I think he left yesterday. What's today, the 19th, something like that? Uh, he left on the 18th. Is today the 19th? I'm getting questionable looks. I'm, I'm challenged. So, I, so, yes, okay. I think it was yesterday he left, the 18th. Um, he should be in that village now working with the the men who are uh, uh, training to be pastors. And so he is uh, moved on from, we had him teaching basic doctrines, um, you know, just the essentials of the Christian faith. Uh, these people had been storied. They'd heard plenty of stories from the Bible. But we need to just solidify their foundation with some basic essential doctrines. And so we've done that. And uh, as I interviewed with them and asked them questions about them, they, they are understanding. They're still young. They're maturing. Uh, in their faith, but the reality is they're, they're getting it. And so this time as he goes, he's focusing on the gospel, uh, trying to help them get a broader, bigger view of it, what it is, what it does in us, and what it does through us. And so I would encourage you over the next two weeks, he'll be there for two weeks, I would encourage you to be praying for him and those men as they train to be pastors. Uh, it's vital, uh, vital ministry we're doing in that village. And so I just encourage you to, to do that. Uh, Luke chapter 11, we're going we're gonna to be dealing today uh, really with the result of or the, or the work that Jesus had been doing all along. So, so, so Jesus, in the first eight chapters, Luke shows us that Jesus' identity had been established. He did that in the birth narrative by showing us that he's born of a virgin, um, showing us the, the prophecies being fulfilled and things like that. So we began to see who Jesus was in the birth narrative, the first four chapters of Luke. And then the second four chapters of Luke, the, uh, across this first third of Luke, we're seeing his identity, not just established in his birth, but also in his life. Twice across those eight chapters, we hear God speak from heaven and say, this is my son. And so if anybody's going to argue at this point with Jesus's identity, they're arguing against a voice from heaven that says he's my son. They're arguing against the testimony of his believer, the, the, the closest of his followers, they saw him intimately. They heard his teaching. They, they walked with him. They saw him behind the scenes. This wasn't just a show. It wasn't like he was a, he was a, a televangelist living a good life in front of people and going behind the scenes and, and just asking how much money he was getting. It's not what he was about. And so when he challenged them, when he asked them, who do you say that I am? Their confession was, you are the Christ of God. They didn't fully understand who he was. They didn't fully understand the mission that he was come to accomplish. And they didn't fully understand the mission he had called them to accomplish. But they saw him as the Christ, the Messiah, the one they'd been waiting on. And the crowds, the crowds demonstrated the identity of Christ because they recognized his power to be from God. The crowds pressing in on him, ever present around him, him, Jesus having to withdraw to places so that he could have some quiet and some rest and so that he could pray. The crowds were, they saw Jesus as, as something more than just a regular man. They knew that he was from God. They, they, they questioned whether he was just a prophet or whether he was Elijah or whether he was John the Baptist. They questioned about his identity, but they understood him to be from God. And his identity is, is clearly established and then at the end of Luke chapter 8, turning into Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us that this transition happens, this distinct transition happens. And he says that Jesus resolutely determines to go to Jerusalem. He determines that now is the time 
for him to begin walking towards Jerusalem, heading out of the, the Galilean ministry and heading to Judea to, that he might accomplish the things that he had come to do. His identity clearly formulated, clearly demonstrated. There's now a time for him to go get the work done he'd come to accomplish. But with that distinction, with that, with that transition comes another transition that you'll notice across this next part of Luke. We see a whole lot less miracles and hear a whole lot more teaching. It's not that the miracles cease. In fact, we're going to study a miracle today. It's not that the miracles cease, but they, they cease to be the focus. Jesus has shown himself to be the Christ from God. Now, we need to hear what he has to say. And so Luke shows us. He, he, he's going to spend the next part of this gospel record. He's going to spend it showing us what Jesus had to say. One other distinction you're going to see clear, and it's going to seem to grow. The closer we get to, to the cross, this is going to seem to grow more and more, is the distinction between the two kingdoms represented in this gospel record. There's going to be those people who follow Christ, and there's going to be those people who reject Christ. And the distinction between them, the disparity between them, the contrast between these two kingdoms is going to grow ever more clear. And it's going to become so drastic that there's going to be a point that when Jesus says who he is, they condemn him for it and end up crucifying him. And that division we're really going to begin to see kind of play out in front of us today in these, in these verses that we're going to study. So let's begin reading Luke chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept sinking from him a sign from heaven. So two things I want to point out before we get into the, to the rest of this passage. Two things I want you to see that kind of set the context. There's the miracle. Jesus is... is uh, is, is casting out a demon. It says the demon was mute, which really means that the demon made the man mute. The demon's power, the exercise that he exercised over the man is he kept him from speaking. For some of, the, for some of us, this would be a terrible thing. Like, we'd have trouble. I was in Senegal, and one of the, one of the first uh, team, one of the team members on the first week was constantly shooting video. And every time I, the video was on, I seemed to be talking. And so I think if this happened to me, I would be like crazy because I like to talk. You say as many words as I do, you're bound to, to, to say some things a little off or you forget what you say. But, but man, I didn't realize how, like, how, how much I talk until I saw that video or heard those videos. I actually didn't even see them all, but I'd hear her playing them. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I got to shut up. For some of us, this would be too much. And so Jesus comes in. He casts this demon out. Sends him away, and the man who couldn't speak began to speak. And this sets the context for us. There's two different, there's two opposing sides being represented here. There's two different kingdoms being demonstrated here. Two different authorities, two different powers at work here. The first we see is the destructive side, or the destructive kingdom. It's caused, it's, it's caused by this demon. 
He isn't actively destroying the man. It's not like he's, he's picking apart, apart and the man's riding in front of us. But, but the reality is we're seeing the power of this demon affect him in a physical way and remove from this man an ability that was created by our creator, that was designed into him by our creator. Now, we do everything we can in our own power these days to overcome these things, to, to make it so that, that people don't notice the difficulties and the limitations that they experience in this life as a result of being fallen people in a fallen world. And so there's codes for buildings, like city codes that demand you, you, you build a building in a certain way so that it is accessible as possible to people who can't, who can't walk, who can't grasp, who can't do things that, that the average person can do. And that is a, I, th I think it's a worthy, worthy cause. I think we need to be doing that. We need to be thinking about people who have these kind of difficulties. But the reality is, is this is a result of living in a world that is being ruled by Satan. All of this destruction, all of the removal of the created order and design are a result, not necessarily of the person's sin, but of sin in general. So Jesus saw the blind, or the, saw the deaf man and the, and, and the people said, well, who, who sinned, him or his parents? And he's like, it's neither of those. Right? It's, not, it's not personally their sin that God's like, oh, I'm going to get you. We live in a fallen world, and there is a power at work that we don't give enough credit to. They hinder us living the life that God intended us to live. But there is a second kingdom, a second power, a second authority, and it is restorative. Jesus steps in and says, you get out of him. I don't know that that's exactly what he said, but I'm, I'm assuming it's something like that. Leave. And the man begins to speak. Jesus' power establishes and, 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 and uh, restores what sin destroys. You see, the, the first kingdom is marked by deceit, destruction, and death. But the second kingdom is marked by truth and restoration and life. And Jesus comes in bringing that with him. He came to establish this kingdom. And, and that's what he was doing. In that very moment, that's what he was doing. The second thing I want you to see is the reactions of these people. Now, I don't know, from where I stand, I, I think you'll agree with me, maybe you won't, but I, well, where I stand, I think there's only really one reaction that we should be having to a man who, who's been oppressed by a demon and who couldn't speak, suddenly being able to speak. I think we should celebrate, right? I mean, isn't this worthy of celebrating that Jesus has this power and has just sent a demon away? It might be in different forms. Maybe some people, ooh, ah, <gasps> Look at the power. Maybe some people clapped and cheered. I think celebration would be the thing, but Luke tells us that there's at least three. Oh, yeah, people marveled. People marveled. They were moved. They, were, they celebrated what Jesus had done, but some of them, it says, some of them, some of them accused him of using demonic power. What they didn't do was say he didn't exercise power. They, they didn't deny the power. They didn't say, hey, this man was faking it. You know, like televangelists today, they set things up and they, they have somebody come along and fake it for them. 
No, Jesus wasn't faking it. This man wasn't faking it. They were seeing his power in action. A man they knew couldn't speak, suddenly speaking. The reality of a demon going away. They didn't deny the power, but they sought to discredit the man by associating his power with the wrong kingdom. He's, he's exercising power of the devil. He's doing a work of the devil. Don't pay any attention to him. He's from the devil. Now, others, we're going to deal with this third reaction next week as we just can't get through all these verses. But this third reaction is that others demanded another sign. You just can't get enough, right? Like there's just, okay, I need one more thing. I got one more question that's got to be answered. I need you to explain one more thing to me. I need you to do one more miracle. And if you'll do these things, then, then I'll follow you. Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't turn around and walk away. Thankfully, he doesn't leave them in their foolishness and their inconsistency Thankfully, he doesn't leave them simply to languish in their fallen sinfulness. But as an act of mercy, as an act of mercy in the verses ahead, we're going to see him confront their lives with truth. He's not going to confront them just for the sake of confronting. He's not going to just be confrontational just because he can. He's not going to confront as a jerk. He's going to confront with truth and grace. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just for them. This is not just for the people of that day. We may not be guilty of actually saying that Jesus works his works by the power of the devil. But we live in a world that's constantly rejecting the teaching of Christ. Constantly rejecting his power. And even if we don't say that these works are a power of the devil, even if we don't say that by rejecting him and rejecting his power and thinking that we can do something of our own power and by, 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 by implication, we are saying it's not enough. How many times have you thought, I know I've thought this, how many times have you thought, well, if Jesus was just here in front of me, like if I could see him walking in the flesh, well, then I'd be able to follow him better. Then I'd be able to believe him more fully. If he could just do this one more thing. Jesus, if you'll do this, I'll give my life to you. If you'll give me the husband or wife I want, I'll give my life to you. If you'll give me the gifts I think I need, if you'll exercise your power in the way I demand. Isn't it? The teaching that Jesus is about to offer isn't just for them, it's for us today. In our sin, we are just as illogical, we are just as foolish, we are just as inconsistent as they were then. It, it, it doesn't matter how much technology we get, it doesn't matter how advanced we become, it doesn't how much matter how, how much science we understand and how much we can observe. Certainly these things can help us. I don't want to demonize them. Oh, but these things can be traps for us. The reality is the contrast between these two sides 
is just as real today as it was then. The two kingdoms are just as opposite and at odds today as they were then. There is much, there is just as much, let me say it this way, there is just as much reason to trust Jesus today as there was then. We need to hear his teaching because we struggle with trusting him today as much as people did then and here's the, here's the crux. We will either trust in Jesus' power and be given life under Jesus' rule, or by denying Jesus' power, we'll be swept away in Satan's kingdom of death. Listen, this isn't a simple opportunity of, of, of knowing a nice guy and, and missing him. Or knowing of a nice guy and missing him. This isn't a, a choice between better and best. This is a choice between life and death. There's a choice of standing in the light or standing in the dark. And because Jesus was merciful enough to say the words we're about to hear him say. Because he was merciful enough not to walk away casting judgment, but he was merciful enough to confront their lies with his truth. We get to hear him confront our lives with his truth. We need to hear this answer. So let's listen to his answer. Pick it up in verse 17. So here he is, people reacting, people rejecting. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. He didn't hear them speaking. He knew what they were thinking. Another act of power, if you will. But he, knowing their thoughts, knew what they were thinking. And he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I want to stop right there again just to show you. There's, there's a couple of verses that he is, it's like he's, some, he's building towards these points of truth. This is one of those points of truth. I want you to see it. I want you to understand the nuances of it. I think we can follow his logic. Like he's saying, a divided kingdom, a divided household falls. We get that, right? If ISIS starts fighting ISIS, what happens? ISIS ceases to exist. And while that might be pleasant for us, while that might make our world a better place, there's a reality that that most people, with any kind of sense at all, are are not going to do that. The, The consistency, they're measuring him against a different standard. Like they had exorcists in their culture, and they're saying, oh, well, you're by the devil, but they must be by God. It's a different standard, so they'll be the judge against him. We, I think we can follow this, this logic. But there's some things in, chapter, in, in, in verse 20. He says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's by the finger of God. See, this draws all the way back. Something that all of these Israelite people would have understood. Something we, we probably miss. All of these Israelite people that growing up, they heard about what God had done as he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. As he, uh, he, they heard and understood the exodus and, and the time where they were relieved and removed and restored out from under the oppressive rule of the Egyptian government. Right Out, out from under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. God sends Moses in. You've, you've seen the movie, let my people go, right? You know that, you know the line. 
So Moses, like, he goes in and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Like, he's trying to puff his chest up and he's like, no way. So God says, all right, Moses, we're going to show him how powerful I am. And he begins to command Moses to move through ten plagues. And it's interesting because the first two, Pharaoh was able to mimic. Don't think that the dark power, like, like, like the, the, the enemy, don't think it's not real power. Don't be deceived. When, Jesus, or when, when God, through Moses, turns water to blood, the wizards, the magicians of, of Egypt were able to duplicate that. They were able to mimic it. When he sent frogs, they were able to mimic it. So these first two plagues that are cast on them, they're like, oh, no, no, look, we can do that too. You got nothing on us. The third plague, the plague of gnats, they're confronted with the reality. They don't have quite as much power as they think. In fact, as they try, they realize they're failing. They can't mimic this third plague, and they have to go to Pharaoh. They are forced to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, we can't do this. And it's somewhere around eight, chapter 8, verse, Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. I looked it up this morning. I'm pretty sure it's 19. They say, we can't do this. This must be the finger of God. God is at work. And he's not, he's not bringing his whole hand. He's not bringing his whole arm. He's not stepping in with his whole might by his finger. He is defeating us. And they would have heard that finger of God and they would have thought, this is God at work. The same God who brought us out of Egypt is at work. And if they rejected that, they were going to be rejecting the God who they'd always been counting on to deliver them. But not just that, not just the, the, the finger of God. There's a reality that inside of this teaching, there's the, 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 the imagery of this kingdom. And I think we've romanticized the idea of kingdoms. I think we think of Camelot, right? Like we're thinking of knights and horses and jousting and men being men and, and standing up for, for the damsel in distress. You know, we've romanticized this with, this, with, with, with following the royals in England. And, oh, man, the Queen of England and Princess Diana. And while there's nothing wrong with you, us paying attention to that, I think we've missed the idea of what a kingdom is. A king sits sovereign. He doesn't ask people. Uh, he, he doesn't seek advice. He commands. He rules with authority. The idea of a kingdom is about authority. It's about rule and reign. And so in this answer, we see not just Jesus' power, but we see his authority. He says, if the finger of God, if I've done this, then it's by the finger of God. You see God's power and you see God's authority. And both are necessary. If one is to exercise power but doesn't have authority, then he is a tyrant. If one ex exercises power but cannot, cannot stand in authority and say, submit to me, then he must force submission, which is oppression. If one has authority but no power, then what kingdom will there be? God's kingdom is established by his power and with his authority. There is no one who can stand and reject it and think that they're going to benefit by his power. They will either submit to his authority or they will be 
condemned by his power. They won't experience blessing unless they step into both. So here it is summed up. Jesus just exercised power and authority over a demon. He's been doing that since the beginning of his ministry. This wasn't, it wasn't like he just got lucky this time, right? Like he was walking city to city, village to village. And some of these villages he would step into, he would leave them, and there would not be a demon-possessed person left in the village. Like he had taken care of them all. This wasn't, he never said, get out, and, and a demon didn't go. They always did what he said because he had power and authority. Now, if the Israelites were right, if they were right in their estimation that Jesus is doing this by, 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 by the power of Satan, then they had every right to resist him. They had every reason to resist him. But if they are wrong, if they are wrong, then they are opposing the very power of God that removed them under the rule of Pharaoh. They're resisting and rejecting the very power that he promised would come to deliver them and establish his kingdom forever. And just one more nuance I want to draw out of this to help you see just how serious this is, not just for them, but for us. In Mark chapter 3, when he, when he records this and, and uh, lets us see Jesus in this moment where he is confronting this, these lies with his truth, Mark lets us see another part of Jesus' argument that's important. In verses 28 through 30, he says uh, that, that basically there is forgiveness of, every, of every, every kind, every blasphemy that we utter, there is forgiveness for them except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we have committed an eternal sin for which we cannot be forgiven. And here's the reason why. Because if we stand... And we start saying that Jesus is doing his work and his power is by the devil. Then what we're saying is that the power of the Holy Spirit, which we know is the power that flowed through Christ. If that power, if we reject that power and we assign the power that Christ used to the, to the enemy and to the devil. Then there is nothing else he can do to convince us that we must repent and turn to him and trust him. If we have determined that the power of Christ is really drawn from the devil, then even his resurrection will only cause us to reject him further. And every act of power after that will just be greater reason to deny him and reject him and ignore him. And so if we stand in this place where we say that Jesus has acted in power, but that power is the power of the devil, then we have put ourselves in a place of judge against God. Until we repent of that sin, we will stand unforgiven. We must repent of that sin if we will ever stand in his kingdom. Until we do, we are opposing the God of the universe. Until we do. So you see, this is no small thing because as we sit here today, as we sit here today, we're still a people who struggle with rejecting Jesus' power. We're still rejecting his authority. We're still striving to go our own way, do our own thing, prove ourselves powerful. Determine that we have something in and of ourselves to offer. We are as guilty of denying and rejecting the Christ as people have ever been. 
We will either trust in Jesus' power and be given life under Jesus' rule, or by denying Jesus' power, we will be swept away in Satan's kingdom of death. And we, like these people, being confronted with Jesus' teaching, are now at a fork in the road. What will we do? Who are we going to believe? In what are we going to place our trust? Who is going to live and rule over our life? Well, in his teaching, Jesus gives us every reason to trust him. We trust Jesus because his power and authority are accompanied by true wisdom. I want you to just look. He says, but knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself, this is verse 17 and 18, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and divided households fall. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? Like he's taking their limited, inconsistent, foolish perspective and saying, that's illogical, it doesn't even make sense. How could you think such a thing? He, he undermines their wisdom, their finite, incomplete, foolish wisdom with his true wisdom. He shows them the wisdom of the world will always leave us wanting. The wisdom of the world tells us if we long for, long for happiness, we must find something in this world. Like the pursuit of happiness is always answered by finding the right job, the right spouse, the right set of circumstances. And if you're unhappy, just change one of those. Change your job. Change your spouse. Because those are interchangeable, right? Just find a better situation and a better circumstance. The wisdom of God says, look at my son. See him for all he is. You'll find your joy there. You'll be blessed by him. Thank God he didn't let us stay where these people were standing. Jesus' wisdom is certain. It is undeniable. His wisdom isn't limited by the finite perspectives of mankind. Rather, as the creator that designed all and sees all and knows all, he also understands all things. His wisdom is always true, and so we trust him. We trust him because his power and authority are exercised consistently the world's wisdom is not just foolishness in comparison to God's, but it's also inconsistent. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, but by, by whom do your sons cast them out? The Jews, they, 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 they had exorcists. They had men who would walk around seeking to cast out demons. And apparently they had some measure of success. But they were holding him to a different standard. Oh, so you're saying your people can do this by God, but obviously I can't. Like, I never fail. <laughs> Come on. Every demon has obeyed me. Every demon has had to bow to my power. And you're going to say in some way my power, my, 
My, my authority is less than those of, of your people who obviously weren't that successful because apparently there were a lot of demon-possessed people around that he was casting demons out of. They were so inconsistent, but so were we. So were we. We say we live by grace and then we build laws for people to live by. Like, I got grace, but you're going you're gonna to measure up to my standard if I'm going to be gracious to you. Who, who doesn't long for grace and mercy for their own sin? Who doesn't dismiss the weight and gravity of their own sin while they hold others fully accountable for theirs? Am I the only one? Probably not. We're so quick. <laughs> Perfect example, I think, of this is in our day and age, the world would say, oh, we got to be tolerant. We need to be tolerant. Until you disagree with us, and then we're going to come burn your house down. Wait, I thought you were tolerant. That's not tolerance. That's building a law for everybody to live by, and then when they fail, you bring judgment. That's what we've always been doing. We're inconsistent in our fallenness. We are inconsistent, illogical, and foolish. And we need Jesus. We need his wisdom, and we need his consistency. He is always true. There's never shifting shadow. There is no shade in him at all. When he comes with that truth, he brings with him grace. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that you'll quit turning to your own wisdom, striving to be consistent by your own strength, and you'll trust more fully in the Christ who is. We trust in Jesus because his power and authority are greater than all others. He, he turns then in verse 21, he turns to this place where he begins to show them in, in a parable that that. Hey, I'm, I'm more powerful than everybody else. I'm more powerful than those who are holding on to these people. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. No one questions a war, a winner of a war, when the person holding all the goods says, I won. Like the, the, the fight's on the school playground, right? So, so the bully comes in and he beats the guy up. The strong kid comes in and beats a guy up. When the kid's laying on the ground and bloody because he just got beat up and starts saying, I beat you up, I won, nobody's going to agree with that. The guy standing up at the end with less black eyes and without a bloody nose, that's the guy who won. In war, the one with the spoils of war at the end of the war is the one that won the war. And here Jesus is standing in this place where he's standing by a man who couldn't speak, who can now speak. He's holding the spoil of war. And he says, I'm more powerful. In fact, I've got power that, may, that, 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 that they must submit to. They have no choice. Time and time again, he showed his power. And by his power, his kingdom didn't destroy. His kingdom didn't, 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 didn't deceive. His kingdom was established restoring the image of God in his people. Restoring his design in them. 
and giving them life, letting them see truth. In his power, he came preaching to the, so that the blind might see, the deaf might hear, the lame might walk, that the poor would hear the gospel. That's his power. That's his authority. And it's greater than every other power out there. So which one are we going to trust in? Man, I, I can't barely keep the date straight. There's nothing I have real control over except this choice before me right now. Will I trust his power? Or will I reject it for some lesser power? I hope you'll trust his. We trust his power. We trust in Jesus. And we trust Jesus because his power and authority provide our only hope. There is no hope apart from him. Another verse where Jesus is, is really drawing out his point. Verse 23 says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. This teaches us, this shows us that everything about his teaching revolves around him. You're with him or you're against him. There's no neutral position. There's no, no place in the middle. We don't get to stand and, and stand off and say, well, I'm kind of figuring things out. You're either with him in his kingdom or you're without him outside his kingdom. You're either following him or you're following the devil. You're either under his power and protected by his power or you're under the power of the devil. There is no middle ground. You may think, you may believe in some worldly way that you have rule over your life, that you can do something of your own power and strength. But you are hopeless in that position. He is our only hope. There is no other chance. You're either with him or you're against him. The truth is, my concern is that there's people here today that stand in the very same place these people stood. Jesus' power has been made evident. We have history on our side. When they put him in the ground, they couldn't keep him there. He rose. His power has been proven. And history continues to prove it. He was no myth. There's no way that we're going to discredit him. We might try to discredit the word that speaks of him. But history will continue to prove he is the one who had the power, who was always who was completely wise, who was always consistent. And because of that, we can see that he is our only hope. But if we reject him, be warned. If you would reject him, then you are working against the mission of God who has sent him to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Be warned. Truth is this, and I, I don't say this lightly. I'm not just trying to be crass. But if you will not trust Jesus, if you will only reject Jesus, and you're sitting in this room, and you're trusting in your religion, and you're rejecting that you need Christ, you're rejecting the, the fact that you're a sinner, then, 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 then hear me. You need to quit toying around with church. It's a sunny day outside. There's a lot of things you could do to fill your life up. 
And I would encourage you to go do it. If you're going to stand in a place and continually reject Jesus, I would encourage you to go fill your life with as much stuff as this world has to offer. Because for you, this is as good as it gets. Be warned. To reject Jesus is to be separated from him. Be warned. To reject Jesus, this is as good as you'll ever have it. So quit playing around with religion. Quit playing around with things that are fruitless and and won't last. Go fill your life with as much fun as you can because this is as good as it gets for you. But please, don't run away without hearing this. Don't, 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 Don't run away without hearing this call. Because the reality is, I don't want you to run away. I want you to trust him. I want you to trust in him alone. Because the truth is that no matter what you give up in this life, the hope is that in him, what we seemingly give up will be paid back so much we'll never feel like we sacrifice a thing. Our hope is in what he's doing. Our hope is in what he's going to provide. Our hope is in all that's to come. Please hear this call. Trust in him alone. He is our only hope. He is the only promise that we have. He is the only opportunity for provision and protection that we have. Trust in him. If you're going to reject this call, if you're going to reject this king, I'm praying for you. There's no reason for you to sit here and waste time in here anymore. We are either with him or we are against him. There's no middle ground. Let's get with him. Let's believe in him. Let's trust him. Let's rest in his power. Let's let's live under his authority. Because those who do find lasting freedom. We trust in Jesus because under his power and authority we find true and lasting freedom. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Do not be fooled. Do not be deceived. There is no one in this world who doesn't live under some authority. And even seemingly if you do for a moment, a moment will come when the last state will be worse than the first. See, the truth is this. We talk about freedom and we think of it in terms of ruling ourselves, getting to determine our own destiny, but truth is we're always under some influence. We're either in the kingdom of the devil or we are in the kingdom of Christ. We are in the kingdom of darkness or we are in the kingdom of light. We're always under the influence of one of these two kingdoms. To be made free is not about getting to be your own God or rule your own destiny. True freedom is freedom from the oppressive and destructive rule of the enemies of God and freed to live under the gracious and merciful authority of God.
That's freedom. Freed from the oppression of the devil and freed to enjoy the blessing of obedience to the God who created us. In Christ, this is the only place we find this kind of freedom. And in Christ, there is nothing that can take it away. Absolutely nothing that can remove it. There is neither death nor life, angels or demons that can take us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We cannot be taken when we trust in him. And finally, for those who do trust Jesus, we trust Jesus because for those who do, his power and authority bring blessings, not curses. This final little But at the end, I think this woman was one of the ladies who marveled. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, Jesus doesn't so much disagree with the woman as kind of add to what she's saying. He, He kind of qualifies it for her. He brings her into a deeper, better understanding. Yes, Mary was blessed. Absolutely, she was blessed. But so is everyone else who hears God's word and keeps it or obeys it, if you will. Isn't that what Mary did? I mean, you think about what happened in that, in that story. So, so the angel shows up and he says, hey, you're going to give birth. Well, I've never, had, never been with a guy. How's that going to happen? But at the end of it all, she says, hey, do with me as you will. I'm yours. She hears God's word, and rather than resist it or reject it, she submits under it. Is she not doing exactly what all of us have been called to do? Is that, why, is that not why she enjoys the blessing of God, because she heard his word and submitted to it? So we're, we're so quick to run to the advice of the world, to the wisdom of the world, to the, consistent, or the inconsistency of the world. We're so quick to listen to what they have to say. Jesus says, no, the blessing is not in going the way of the world. The blessing is hearing God's word. Doing it, as difficult as it might be, as, as much as it might like, feel like you're picking up a cross to carry it, as large a burden as it might feel, God is going to use that for the good of his people. He's going to shape us by it. He's going to bless us with it. It's where we're going to find the joy of our salvation. It's where we're going to experience the hope of what's to come. So we stick in these difficult circumstances, not because because we're just sticking in difficult circumstances for the sake of being in difficult circumstances. We live trusting Christ and Christ alone because as we do, that's where we find his blessing. He is the king. We're the people of his kingdom. That means his power and authority, what we obey, And what we are blessed by. We're either with him or against him. There is no middle ground. We are either with him or against him. Blessed with him or cursed apart from him. The choice is yours. We will either trust in Jesus' power and and given life under Jesus' rule. Or by denying Jesus' power be swept away in Satan's kingdom of death. Let me close with this quote from J.C. Ryle, who, commenting on this, wrote, uh, I think, an exceptional way to end this, summarize it, and just let you deal with the Spirit. He writes, There is no safety 
except in thorough Christianity. To put to one side open sin is nothing unless grace reigns in our hearts. To cease to do evil is a small matter if we do not also learn to do good. The house must not only be swept and whitewashed, a new tenant must be introduced or else the leprosy may appear again on its walls. The outward life must not only be decorated with the formal trappings of religion, the power of vital religion must be experienced in the inner man. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. This is the key. It's not what you do. It's not what power you have. It's not what wisdom you own. Will you trust Christ? He must dwell in our hearts by faith. We must not only be moralized, but spiritualized. We must not only be reformed, but born again. Let us not be houses swept clean, but uninhabited by the Spirit. Let our daily prayers be. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. So let's just ask that right now. Let's pray. Let's every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, no one paying attention to the other person. You sit here in front of this Savior who has exercised power and authority on your behalf. And you ask yourself, will I trust in him and be blessed by living in obedience to him? Or am I trusting in the wisdom of the world? Am I establishing a law for the world to follow and not just the world but others in this room? Am I trusting in some power other than his? Father, search our hearts. Show us the inconsistencies and the lack of wisdom. Confront us with the truth that defeats our lies. That we might stand in your kingdom and be restored. Would you make us whole? Would you lead us in the way of everlasting? That we may never be ruled again by a power that destroys, a power that deceives, and a power that, that, that leads to death. But that we might always be ruled by your gracious, merciful, holy, righteous power and authority. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.